Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard Rutger Bregman talk about his book Utopia for Realists and why he believes that a universal basic income is an idea whose time has come. This week, we talk to an academic who has been researching the impact of the internet on society and politics. There's no doubt that big data analytics plays a part in the political landscape now. And it's a challenge to researchers because we can't get the same sort of data. That was Helen Margetz, head of the Oxford Internet Institute, speaking to Madhumita Mergia about why we need more research to find ways to combat the pathologies of the internet. So tell us, Helen, a little bit about your role at the Oxford Internet Institute. So what actually is the OII and what does it do? Sure. Well, we were founded in 2001 to investigate the relationship between the internet and society. And why does anybody need to do that? Well, the internet and internet-related technologies are intertwined with every area of life, really how we work, how we shop, how we date, how we socialize, how we do politics, all these things are changing because of what we can do with the internet. And the University of Oxford, perhaps surprisingly, certainly bravely set us up to investigate that question. What were you doing before that? How did you get interested? Or, I mean, we, we all use the internet, but why did you start thinking about the kind of ripple effects of the internet on our lives? What were you doing before you came to the Oxford Internet Institute? Well, I wasn't at Oxford when the OAI was first set up. I was at UCL and I was professor of political science at UCL. But before I was a professor of political science, I was working in the private sector. I was a computer programmer and systems analyst. And then I went back to school, as it were, my first degree is in mathematics. And I did a master's degree at the London School of Economics and then a PhD. And I never went back to the private sector And I guess part of the reasoning behind my research or the thinking behind the kind of research that I do was that I came to study government and the political world and it was like nobody ever mentioned computers or information technology or any of those things. It was like they didn't exist. And I wanted to explore why that was and whether those technologies were making any difference to the political world. And then the internet came along. I mean, when I first did that, it was a sad and lonely thing to do. Not many people were carrying out that kind of research or asking those kind of questions. But then the internet came along and people became interested in it, became a much sexier subject. And now it's a vibrant field of research. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the sort of different themes or issues that keep you and your researchers at the OII up at night? What are the big intractable problems you're thinking about solving or ripple effects that you consider as you go about your research? Well, I think the key driver for change is the fact that the internet and internet-based platforms allow you to do little bits of something. So take politics, for example. In an earlier era, if you wanted to become involved in politics, you had to do something quite big, like join a political party, go to long meetings, tramp the streets, knocking on doors. But now, as you go about your daily life on some or other 
social media platform, you're invited to do very little bits of politics all the time. You can like something or share something or view something. And when you do that, you've actually done a little bit of politics. And the fact that you've done it is visible to other people. Other people can see that you've done it. And that's made a little change. It's only very small, but that's changed what we can do in the political world. And it's changing the kind of people who do it. So it's drawing new people into politics, young people, for example, that for years we've been bemoaning they're not interested in politics or involved. It's involving people in politics who weren't there before. And it's also changing people's behaviour. It's actually changing the way that people do things. It's changing the nature of political mobilisation it's challenging traditional political institutions. So just that fact of being able to do a little piece of something is having quite profound effects on the way that we do politics. But it's also affecting, I think, every area of our lives. It's changing the way that we do work, for example. Yeah, more and more workers are starting to work in this way on the internet and sort of independently and for themselves. But nobody's really looked at what that means for their wages or what that means when more and more people come online and enter the workforce in that way. So that's something you think about as well, isn't it? Well, that's right. That's another good example. So platforms like Uber and Upwork and Airbnb, they allow us to do a little bit of work and to maybe fit that round other parts of our lives, like caring responsibilities or something like that. And that is changing the whole nature of working patterns for some people. But again, it's also challenging institutions, like it's challenging the idea of a secure full-time job and a pension and all the things associated with job security. So it's both changing behavior in positive ways, but also challenging conventional institutions. So have you any uh, clues for us on what the future of work will look like in that context? Are you positive about where it's going if we take into account the automation and the gig style work that we're starting to do? Where do you see work moving to? Well, I think the very fact that it makes it more flexible, it makes it possible to fit work around other things is going to have positive effects. But I think we're going to enter a period of real institutional catch up where we need some of the institutional guidelines, regulations to be attached to micro labor platforms as we conventionally have in the workplace, um, things like health and safety guidelines and all the things that we associate with the workplace are going to have to be applied to platforms which will do everything they can to not have themselves considered as workplaces or employers. And we've seen that already. We've seen that challenge to Uber, for example, the idea that Uber taxi drivers actually are employees. And obviously, Uber will fight back at that. But that's what we're going to see over the next few years. We're going to see an institutional regulatory catch up for the practices that have already developed. That's interesting. You talked about policy. From what I've covered of this whole kind of area, the internet is mostly unregulated. And that's true also of a lot of the largest companies that we think of as internet companies. So Google and Facebook, you know, for years, they've just been able to grow and grow without really thinking about the consequences of their impact. And only now are governments and people starting to catch up to what that means and people are starting to think about how to push back on it and regulate it. What are your thoughts on that, on, say, for example, social media companies and complete lack of regulation in that space? 
Well, I think it's important that we shouldn't be too scared of that, that it's possible to introduce changes without endangering the very nature of the internet. And I think for some people and for some organizations, that's kind of threatening this idea that we do anything to regulate social media platforms, for example, because there was very much a culture associated with the early days of the internet, which was about kind of a utopian cyber libertarian culture where you mustn't touch anything that went on. And that prevented us from thinking about this for a long time. And I think it's important that we're not scared of thinking about it, that we accept the fact that Uber is an employer and that Facebook is a media company and think about applying the same sort of institutional constraints that we have for mainstream media companies and mainstream employers. So I think it's important that we do do that and that we're not too scared to do it. And as we are already seeing the companies themselves accepting that they have some responsibility for the pathologies of social media like online hate and fake news and computational propaganda and so on. Moving towards politics, which is one of your original interests, you wrote this book called Political Turbulence, and that was in 2015, but 2016 turned out to be this cataclysmic year that basically showed that a lot of what you wrote was coming true. So I'm really interested. So the book, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Political Turbulence was about, and then we can take it forward to what that taught us in 2016 and, and beyond? Sure. Well, it hinges on this argument that social media allow us to do tiny acts of political participation, very small things like liking or sharing or viewing something. And these very small acts can scale up to really large scale mobilizations. And we saw that in responses to the financial crisis of 2008. We saw it in the... Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024. Revolutions of the Arab Spring. There's not a country in the world that hasn't somehow been touched by mobilization based on social media. But what we forget or what we don't notice, because we only see the ones that succeed, we don't see the vast majority which fail. We don't kind of see those on our TV screens. And what we did in the book was we took some large-scale data, for example, about petitions. We have data on every single signature to every petition to the UK government and the US government over the last five years. And we looked at that data. We analyzed that data to show that almost all these mobilizations fail, but that the very few that succeed do so incredibly rapidly in a very unpredictable way. And I think that's the kind of nature of contemporary politics. That's part of the explanation why things seem to come from nowhere and that unpredictable things keep happening, like, for example, Donald Trump being president or Jeremy Corbyn being leader of the Labour Party. 
this scaling up of very small acts is what explains that unpredictability. So that's what the book was about. And that's why it goes some of the way to explaining what's going on at the moment. So your thesis is that social media is accelerating mobilisation, but not necessarily at fault for causing these unexpected things to happen. And obviously, a lot of people blamed Facebook for the rise of Trump, because they said it's this echo chamber and this bubble and it allowed fake news to spread. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that fake news and separately, you know, bubbles and echo chambers on social media can be blamed in that way for causing one side or the other to win? Well, that's one of the reasons why we need the Oxford Internet Institute and research organisations who are actually examining these phenomena with real data. Because a lot is talked about echo chambers, but actually we've always had echo chambers. The perfect echo chamber would probably be I don't know, just reading the Daily Mail or just watching Fox News. Donald Trump, for example, lives in a very good echo chamber. He follows 43 people on Twitter, mostly his family and alt-right journalists. But that's always been the case. We've always created echo chambers for ourselves as we go about our lives. And I don't think you can blame social media for that particular phenomenon. And that most of the research that has been carried out to date does actually show that people on social media look at more news sources than people who aren't on social media and do suggest that actually it's very much overhyped, the phenomenon of the echo chamber. But also it comes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, which is that you can do things. If echo chambers are developing on social media, they may be easily punctured with things like global trending information or additional sources of information displayed somewhere on a social media screen that immediately show you what's going on in another part of the forest, as it were. So these pathologies, they need looking at carefully. We need to cut through the hype. And then where they do exist, we need to do something about them. For example, new algorithms which detect fake news, for example, there's been quite a lot of interesting work in that area. There's always something we can do, but we have to research it and understand it first. So moving from fake news to data, what has your research shown about the role of data analytics, which is kind of another spoke in the toolkit of technologists in politics today? What role has big data and analytics of big data played in democracies and political process over the last couple of years? Well, that's a very good question, and that is one of the things that keeps researchers awake at night, because it's actually very difficult for academic researchers or social researchers to get hold of the kind of data that, for example, Facebook or the big social media companies and internet corporations like Google have. Yes, big data analytics makes a difference to politics. It's the secret behind targeted personalized advertising, which seems to have been successful, for example, for the Conservatives in the 2015 election, for the Trump campaign, for the Leave campaign in the EU referendum. And parties like the Conservatives campaigns, like the Trump and indeed the Clinton campaign, they run big data campaigns. And that makes it much more difficult for smaller organizations, for smaller political parties or smaller campaigns to compete on an equal footing. So there's no doubt that big data analytics plays a part in the political landscape now. And it's a challenge to researchers because we can't get the same sort of data. 
So I mentioned earlier companies like Cambridge Analytica. Do we think that these sort of academic focused research type organizations through their use of data analytics are actually enhancing the political process? Is it a good thing? Or should we be scared that we're being tracked by these unknown organizations and our lives are being pieced together and people are trying to predict which way we're going to vote? Is it a good or a bad thing that data has now become part of the political toolkit? Well, you see, that's a difficult one. So Cambridge Analytica is a good example. The Trump campaign used Cambridge Analytica and so did the Leave campaign in the EU referendum. And I could point you to articles arguing that that's what won it for Trump and that's what won it for Leave. And I could point you to articles saying that all that is smoke and mirrors and completely overhyped. So it's difficult to say, and it comes back to the point, I mean, the reason why we can't say is because as academic researchers, we can't get hold of the same kind of data that Cambridge Analytica may have. Facebook data is just not available to people. And I think as researchers, to be able to answer your question, the kind of thing we're going to have to do is actually pay Cambridge Analytica ourselves to do the kind of things that they're doing. And of course, it's difficult to do that in an ethical way. But we are going to have to work out ways of assessing the effects of, for example, political advertising, targeted advertising, without actually obviously doing that advertising ourselves. We're going to have to find ways of using the same kind of methods and perhaps the same companies and measuring the effect that it has to really be able to answer that question. Okay, that's really interesting. Bringing this back to people, because you study the impact on people and societies, big data has been seen as this big opportunity, especially by corporates, by governments, how we can use it in a positive way. But really, it's all built on this personal data economy of tracking individuals through all of their online habits and turning them into a product. So do you think that A, we as a society are going to become more aware of the fact that we're essentially selling our data in return for apparently free services. And, you know, what can we do to take control of that again? Well, that's interesting. Yes, I think people are becoming more aware and there has been some research done in how much people think they ought to be able to sell their data for. And there is more awareness. But, of course, Facebook's mantra, for example, is it's free and it always will be. And people do want the things that social media platforms provide. So they're probably going to carry on using them. I think as a researcher, what I think about that is there should be more ways. We need to think of innovative ways in which people can donate their data or give their data for research. So For example, people happily give all sorts of health-related data for research or would happily give health-related data. I mean, surveys show that. What about giving their social data for research? I mean, we're in the situation at the moment where you can donate blood, but you can't donate your data. And I think we might find that people were willing to do that if they knew that it was for some social good or public good for making services better, for example, or for saving money, making services more efficient. And we need to get better at working out ways of doing that, of kind of using people's data for public good things rather than just to make Facebook richer. 
Well, that's fascinating. Thank you so much, Helen, for joining us today. And um, it was a really, really interesting conversation. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic when we hear from Lily Cheng, who leads Microsoft's social interaction research. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.